Hello, and welcome to Out of Your Shell Podcast. I recently caught up with a friend from seminary. We got together on Zoom, and we had a great conversation about some of the transitions he's been through in his life. And I want to play that conversation for you. But first, let me tell you a little bit about him. Andy Stanton Henry was raised as an evangelical Quaker in Mount Gilead, Ohio. Now, this small town is in the heart of the Midwest United States, surrounded by Amish country and positioned close to the rolling Allegheny foothills. A lot of people have described rural Midwesterners as backward and unsophisticated, but the words that Andy uses to describe his small-town neighbors are competent, creative, resourceful, resilient. He describes them as people who are doing the work of leading their communities and loving their neighbors in often hidden but important ways. He says that there are people who are working to build inclusive, thriving local economies working to weave a welcoming social fabric into their region, working to start new businesses and revive old buildings and co-create a positive future for their small town. Andy is a soft-spoken guy, and he loves to tell a good story, especially when it challenges stereotypes and confounds us with surprising complexity. He posted a blog in the tumultuous post-election days of 2020. You might remember those days as well. He wrote this. We can find hope in the complexity of people and the many-storied nature of our neighbors. It means that we all have the capacity to break old patterns, defy expectations, and tell a new story. Andy is the author of a book called Recovering Abundance, 12 Practices for Small-Town Leaders. And he uses the biblical account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 as a thought-provoking paradigm for small-town abundance. He takes a deep dive into the challenges of rural life and ministry from the perspective of someone who values the investment that groups and individuals make in their small communities. This book is an amazing resource for anyone who is living or serving in a small town that may be underestimated and underappreciated. In his blog, Andy talks about the power and influence stories have on our lives. He says this, Stories don't just tell us about what happened in the past. They interpret the present and impact the future. They influence how we direct energy and resources. Indeed, stories have healing and transformative power. This has often been true for small towns and rural communities. He goes on to say, I want to tell an alternative story about small towns and rural regions, one that helps to repair that broken dignity. Not a story about decline and desperation for outside intervention, but a story about the agency and creativity of what I call ordinary leaders from within those communities. Not a story about scarcity and depravity, but of abundance and generosity. 
This alternative story not only fills out the narrow narrative that is pervasive in our time, but also shapes our intention and direction as we work to repair and renew our communities. Because we don't just tell stories, we live them. And the stories we tell become the stories we live. So what happens when someone invests so much of their time and energy and resources and, and commitment to a small town community and then finds himself in a place of transition that calls him out of that community? When Andy met Ashlyn, he discovered in her a mirror of his own values. Family, faith, social justice, stability, place. But their relationship also embodied the values of mutuality and equality, which was great, but also came with its own set of challenges. In order for one of them to enjoy the closeness and stability of their roots, the other would have to transplant themselves in an unfamiliar town a long drive from home. No matter where they decided to settle, the decision would bring with it a difficult transition, fraught with surprises, discomfort, instability, uncertainty, and doubts about whether their decision was the right one. Andy Stanton Henry is our guest on today's episode, and I'm excited to introduce you to him. As I mentioned, he and I met at the seminary we both graduated from, Earlham School of Religion in Richmond, Indiana. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here it is. Hey, Andy. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for agreeing to come on and be interviewed. You bet, Brett. When you think about transition in general, what kind of big things stick out for you in your life? Well, I'll start by saying I don't think I'm naturally very good at transition. Um, I have a motto that I say half jokingly, but half honestly, consistency is the spice of life. So, but by nature, I'm not someone who's just like, oh, I just can't wait to, to do something new. Um, I really value and enjoy so-called normal, you know, rhythms of life and looking out the window and seeing the same view, but with the seasons changing and that kind of thing. So often, you know, I don't necessarily go into it willingly. It's, it's something forced on me. Um, leaving home for college, I moved to Kansas. Um, Where did home start out? Home was in Ohio. Okay. Yeah, that's right. where I grew up. And when I was about eight, my parents built a house on a piece of land in, in the country and they still live there. So I'm grateful that, you know, I had a fairly stable growing up time. But yeah, so then I transferred colleges and I went out to Kansas and that was a big change, obviously. And uh, then after that, I moved out to Oregon to start seminary out there. Mm. Um, yeah, so I was there for, I think, four years. Then that was really the time where the, the biggest transition in my life happened uh, when I went through a divorce. When you're married, so your life is so much determined you know, by your, your plans you make together with that other person. Then when you're not, you know, it's uh, it's a void, you know, it's like, well, I've always been thinking in these terms, you know, both in terms of the life shattering experience of divorce, just personally, 
feeling like you failed, feeling like from a perspective of faith, you know, that's uh, marriage is supposed to be sacred. And I, you know, wasn't able to hold it together. And not to mention, why didn't God save my marriage? You know, it's kind of one of the, it was a theological crisis, I think. Not because I expected God to control everything. I think I'd long left behind that idea. But it's like, yeah, but the big things, you know, it's like, if God is so pro-marriage, you think if you're putting in the honest effort, um, somehow it works out. And so it's just very devastating on on so many levels and anybody, you know, that's been through that. Mm -hmm. What faith tradition did you have at the time? So I grew up in evangelical Quakerism, kind of in that holiness stream of Quakerism. And I had kind of sojourned other places. I'd spent time among charismatics. I'd spent time among Catholics and uh, Presbyterians. But uh, really, that's it's still, it remains the heart of my own faith. It's Quaker. But definitely the evangelical part of that was pretty strong through my background. And I think I still held on to it in some way very different than what I grew up with. I will say... Something really beautiful that came out of it was my grandmother who recently passed away. Soon after the divorce, I was visiting back home in Ohio and spent some time with her. And honestly, I was really ashamed to be around her because I I saw her as this, you know, really holy person who kind of had, you know, has it all together and and was embarrassed. You know, I had forgotten that she had been through a divorce. She was actually a pastor's spouse. And unfortunately, true to kind of the stereotype, her husband had had an affair with the secretary, you know, incredibly painful, embarrassing journey for her. But she went through that and found healing. And then she turned around and made that kind of her own ministry uh, because she married my grandfather, who also went through a divorce. They married each other and then they kind of used that to support other people, help other people who were going through that. But I guess I just, you know thought of her in such high regard that I didn't think about that. And so she brought it up and she just approached it with such compassion that it almost makes, you know, brings me to tears just thinking about it because, you know, just such a lovely, holy person. And yet like she didn't even think about approaching it with judgment. So what shift did that create for you? Hmm. I think just the in-person experience of that, because you can say in your mind, well, lots of people go through divorces, you know, God is compassionate. It's okay, yada, yada. But to have somebody in person speak words of grace to you, I think, allowed me to have grace with myself. Um, I had to confront some very hard mental health realities. I'd already struggled with depression in my adult life. You know, this was all just so devastating that put me in a very dark place, to be honest. Thankfully, again, I experienced grace in my faith community. I'm really glad I was a part of that community when this happened because they surrounded me and they created a little circle, circle of support for me and set it up so that uh, if I call you, please answer (laughs) because, you know, it was that kind of uh, mental health situation. So I'm really grateful for their support through that. But in the midst of that darkness, it also, I mean, the the emptiness created was also a possibility of, Mm. okay, it's all open. What do you, you know, what's the um, Mary Oliver, you know, what do you want to do with your one wild and precious life? So once I was able to enter that, 
it was really um, life-giving possibilities there. And so I, I decided two things were clear to me from that. One was I wanted to move back to the Midwest, close to my family. And two, I wanted to finish up seminary at Earlham School of Religion, which is where I eventually met you uh, for a time or paths crossed. And so that was really good. It was really healing to be back in connection with my family, with where I grew up, where I came from, to help remind me who I am and whose I am. And um, finished up seminary there, kind of found my place there, ended up working in a public library. Uh, but I really liked getting to know my community that way. Met Ashlyn, my spouse. We met at uh, in seminary. So as we got to know each other, we realized we had some really common values. You know, our faith, our commitment to you know social justice, but also our commitment to our families and our places, like where we grew up. You know, and what places shaped us, which was a beautiful thing. But then also create a challenge because, you know, then we start talking about marriage and, well, then where are we going to go? She's Appalachian. She's from Tennessee, loves the mountains. And, you know, I grew up in rural Ohio, the flat farmland, you know, and um, ended up just as we both were finishing seminary, she did move to Ohio. And that's where we had our first year of marriage. I mean, she grew to love some things, some people. I say more people. The winters, for example, the snow is magical to me, and it's a nightmare for her. So we actually got married in Cincinnati, which kind of like a bridging point between the South and the North, so people could come and have that experience and come from both sides. And we really wanted to be a bridge couple also, I think, not just regionally, but we both grew up in evangelicalism, but also we've left some of that behind, but still love a lot of people in that world. And But we got married right before COVID, too. So our first year of marriage was in uh, lockdown. Wow. So it's like, well, if you don't like each other, <laughs> you find out real fast, which fortunately we did. We do like each other. So um, we kind of sheltered in that little apartment together uh, for first year of marriage. When I moved back to Ohio... I didn't plan on moving ever again. I had been tired of moving and wanted to be close to my family, be able to be there for my niece and nephew and all that. And I've been reading people like Wendell Berry, who really place a high emphasis on the importance of place and the land and local community. That really connected with me. Yeah, so I planned on living there my whole life and being buried with my ancestors, you know, and, and, and living this Wendell Berry dream. In fact, I... I was writing a book um, that's come out now called Recovering Abundance, and it's about small town leaders. Mm. Um, I wrote a chapter on the importance of finding your place and staying in your place. And that's really only the only way that lasting change happens. Some people commit to their community and they, they build trust, they build relationships, they make change. Uh, and I still believe that. But, you know, it was right when I finished writing that chapter on stability that uh, Ashlyn got contacted by her alma mater in Tennessee. College was a really special time for her. And she was supported by this scholarship program called the Bonner Program. And they supported her financially, um, helped her get through college with the skills, and also gave her service experience. 
that really shaped her worldview for service and justice. And uh, it was like her dream job. And I said, well, of course you have to apply. This is just so in your face obvious that you apply. So she did. And you know, as it went further along, it was clear. It you know, seemed like they were going to offer her the job. So we had to think, okay, well, if they do, what are we going to do? So we went through a clearness committee. If folks aren't familiar, Quaker you know, discernment process of gathering a small group of people who help you make that decision and pray through it and listen. And it turned out that only one of the members were actually Quaker. I have found that to be interesting about the clearness committees is that it doesn't seem to matter what faith tradition you embrace or that you come from. It's like the clearness committee is such a helpful tool. It gives you that opportunity to really explore what your needs are, what your values are. And you know, when you have a decision to make, a lot of Quakers use it with, before they get married. So you were using it before you moved to Knoxville. Can you explain more about what came out of that process? Yeah, it was actually really cool because uh, one of the, the guys that we included, his wife is a UCC pastor that we were close to, and both he and his wife participated, and he just got really into it. He just, this is a new, totally new experience for him, and he made this sign that, like, said clearness committee, and it had the date on it, and he found, like, this Quaker logo, and made a candle with like this Bible verse that we were using as part of the discernment. Wow. So super sweet. And, and they hosted it there, but a lot of questions about you know, family dynamics, about these values that we have, that we were talking about, just helping you see it from all different angles, things you hadn't maybe thought about places to pray with. Mm-hmm. When you look at that time of clearness committee and discernment, what were the two most prominent competing values? Mm. Well, it's more, if I can reframe, it's more of the same values with different expressions or different locations. Excellent. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, because it goes back to that commitment to family and place. And for me, that was Ohio. For her, that was Tennessee. Okay. Well, I'll say this too about values in marriage, because we'd said from the very beginning, we wanted to express mutuality and equality in our marriage. How can you do that then if I say, well, this is my value and this is my family, this is my story. And I'm glad that you have that too, but mine takes precedence. You know, that's that's not equality, but but also you don't want to be like, well, it's just about taking turns. Well, you know, we, we were in Ohio, so now we go to Tennessee. Still want to make sure this is the right you know, decision. So yeah, I'd say the values of equality and the values of place were there and family. Actually, that Sunday, I think it was, we went to uh, worship at uh, the UCC pastor um, at her church. And I was pretty focused on making this decision. And so I was really listening throughout the service, you know, how is it, how can this speak to me, you know, about our decision? And uh, the scripture reading came, and it was actually the last three words of it that stood out to me, and that was, go in peace. For me, I didn't hear that as like, okay, your decision's made, you're going to go. The emphasis was actually the in peace part. It was more of this invitation of like, whether you stay or go, do that in peace. So if you stay 
stay without resentment or regret. And if you go, make sure whatever you need to do or finish before you leave, you do. And if there's relationships that need made right, then do that. And there was a sense, I think, of go in peace in the sense of we could be maybe peacemakers in a, a new place, in this new kind of ministry context. So that was definitely a guiding phrase, a guiding sentence, you know, for me and for us. And, you know, I found in my own experience with God and discernment and transition, it's less and less of expecting God to say, like, do X, Y, and Z, obey. There are times where I felt that, you know, that uh, clear callings to do things. But oftentimes it's more of an invitation to partnership and responsibility. And there's freedom in that. And so it's like, I always felt like that go in peace, stay in peace. It's like, you, you can choose. No divine plan or no, you know, life story is going to be, you know, just completely dis- destroyed if you decide to stay or you decide to go. God works with us. As we make our choices and as things happen in the world and our lives, always working toward toward peace, always working toward wholeness and justice and and uh, flourishing. So there's freedom in that, but ultimately it felt like we decided to move to say yes to that. And I'd like to say from that decision, everything fell into place perfectly. Uh, it was not <laughs> so. We got COVID in the midst of that. And we were told that this professor was moving and they would rent their house to us. Okay, great. Well, then they changed their mind and said, oh, actually, we're selling it. And so we didn't have a place to to live for several months. And then we moved in with two of her brothers and sister-in-law and their house. We, We were in this, like a teenage boy's room. And so it was was me and Ashlyn and our dog living out of a suitcase for, we thought was a few weeks and it ended up being several months. Oh dear. Yeah. So that, and that was a a rough time. Um, They were very generous letting us live there, but it was also kind of an older house too. A funny thing. um, So I went to step in the shower one day and the bathroom floor collapsed. Oh my goodness. Uh, (laughs) Stuff like that was just like, oh man, did we do the right thing? But at the same time, two of our three nieces from her side of the family were born during that time. And we got to live with one of them, you know, get to bond with them. And um, Ashlyn actually got to be there for one of them in the birthing process. Wow. So I tried to keep that in mind. You know, it was a lot in the transition. There were gifts as well, you know, and um, the biblical image of manna in the wilderness was something I carried with me. With me. It was like, yeah, this is a wilderness transition time, but there are these daily bread surprises and gifts that I want to hold on to as well. Another one was we had to commute from Knoxville down here to Jefferson City every day, which is about 35 to 45 minutes. And. Almost every day we saw wild turkey. Oh, wow. Um, and these guinea hens and deer. And it was just like, there was these fields, this purple clover. And I kept thinking of, uh, I think it's Alice Walker, the color purple of like, I think it pisses God off whenever we see purple and we don't notice it. Mm. So just 
hanging on to those gifts and noticing those. And um, yeah, eventually we did find a house. And like, as soon as we found out it was open, we had to like, you know, immediately make an offer. So that's a house we're in now. And I'd say it's made us grateful to have. Oh, I bet. It feels like a mansion, you know, I just feel like so, so much room. We've got a fenced in backyard and our dog, our blue healer, you know, she's, her name's Cassie. She's bred to, to run and play and work all day long. So she's just having a blast of being able to move around and chase birds in the backyard. And we have chickens. We actually brought chickens from uh, Ohio. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Nice. When you remember what your life was like in Ohio, when you think about the internal process of transition and the the growth that happens and the evolution that happens, what would you say is the biggest internal movement that you and Ashlyn have made by moving down to Tennessee? Yeah, I think maybe one of those shifts was, I don't want to say there wasn't trust before, but I think it demonstrated a valuing of Ashlyn's story and her life and her callings by me being willing to make that move. And I think that's really important with these, you know, conversations about transition. I mean, even if you're a single person, there's still other people in your life that are impacted by your decisions. And so it's never a purely individual choice or journey. There's always others with us and there's dimensions of trust and of valuing relationships and learning how to navigate the dynamic between individual and communal or individual and family. Um, we ultimately have to own own our choices. I mean, what, it'll just drive you crazy if you're trying to please everyone because that's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. And what does home mean? I think at the beginning of each year, Ashlyn and I take a few days to um, reflect on the previous year and look ahead to the new year. And we do a practice of choosing a word for the year. For me, that word was home. And, uh, you know, I wanted it to be a physical house the whole time, but it wasn't. And so how do you find home, home in your true self, you know, home with the the people you love, home in God, from a perspective of somebody who's committed to the way of Jesus, there's always that tension between committing to a people in a place, but also, you know, Jesus was kind of an itinerant minister and was always reaching out to people on the edges. So that concept of home, I think, was somewhat transformed as well. Absolutely. Yeah. When you redefine home in the way you just did, it takes on the kind of meaning where you can pretty much take it anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when someone has home as one of their deepest needs and they discover themselves without a structure to come mm -hmm. home to at the end of a day, to make that a shift into what does home look like when you don't have that structure? Yeah. The home looks like different things. We have different access to home. You know, it's unfortunately too many people having to leave their homes. And so I think God's vision of shalom is everybody has, this, you know, the biblical word, a secure dwelling place. But 
the world we live in now, we're all having to navigate that in different ways and to make sure we affirm each other's dignity in that process, you know. Absolutely. One of the books that is profoundly influential in my life is Transitions by William mm-hmm. Bridges. And one of the very basic points of his book is any transition will start with an ending, mm-hmm. then move into a neutral zone before moving into the new beginning. It can be so frustrating because that neutral zone, by definition, it lacks definition. It's like we find ourselves in transition and right after an ending, which can sometimes be traumatic, you get into this neutral zone of confusion and obscurity. And when I think about your story of moving from Ohio to Tennessee, it's like there was an ending and there was a new beginning. But before you could start the new beginning, even though you were physically in Tennessee, there was this huge neutral zone that just got more and more frustrating as it went along. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of Walter Brueggemann, the biblical scholar who he talks about the Psalms having a similar threefold process of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Similar to, I think, what you're saying with the, the ending, uh, neutral zone, and new beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were in Ohio and you imagined what it would be like living in Tennessee with the new job and the closer to Ashland's family and so on, how does the reality differ from the dream? Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to say because I just didn't know what, what it would be like. Learning to embrace the surprises, I think, is one of the invitations of that time. I didn't know that we'd you know, be witnessing the birth of two new little babies, and I've really enjoyed that part of it. I guess maybe yeah, I didn't envision that being such a big part of our life here would be with these little nieces. And I've kind of just, uh, we joked, I have a seahorse energy. I just love to like hold them and watch them and just enjoy like every stage of their development. And uh, it brings new life. So I think that's a big part of it. I've, I still love the boring flat fields of the Midwest. It's just, <laughs> it's just in my soul. Um, but I love the mountains here. It's just like, I, I say all the time, it's like, I don't want to take this for granted. Just to like be able to see that is, is really cool. And Do you envision this to be a place where you and Ashland can grow roots? I don't know. I don't think we've decided that yet. Yeah. Because um, there's still honestly part of me that would like to go back. But I think that commitment to equality and commitment to how our life unfolds together yeah. means we take that one step at a time. But the way the commitment to stability still is expressed, though, is you don't leave on a whim. You don't chase the next thing. You stay here unless there's a, a pretty clear opening to something or somewhere else. So the definition of stability has room to grow. Yes. Steven's stability itself is evolving. <laughs> Transition, transitioning. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think in earlier transitions, it was hard, but I felt like, okay, I can do this because I can envision this linear process. And once I'm done, I'm done with it. Because life is stability with punctuated seasons of change. And now 
I don't know if the world's changing or I'm just seeing the world more clearly, but more and more life is change with punctuated seasons of stability. Mm. You know, I've two images have, have been prominent for me with this and that's God as a rock and a river. God is both rock and river in that God is that source of strength and stability when things are changing, but God is also the change, you know, a constant flow and energy and transition. And God's in that. And the paradox of that too, I thought is actually even rocks are changing. They're being shaped. They've taken often millions of years to become what they are and they're still changing. And there's also stability to going in the flow of a river. So there's a paradox to that. That's something I've brought into my prayers and reflections. So that's why it's great you're having these conversations and you're bringing out this wisdom because it's hard. So yeah. important work you're doing, Brent. So thanks Thank for- you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you contributing to the, the conversation. You bet, Brent. Thank you for carving out some time for us today. Go in peace. Whether you go or whether you stay, whatever you decide, do it in peace. I just love that. Rather than a divine directive, it's an invitation to partnership and responsibility. That's so profound for me when I think about going in peace. There's so much empowerment to be a co-creator in our own destiny. As you heard, the move that Andy and Ashlyn experienced when they moved to Tennessee resulted in months of uncertainty and upheaval. But it was also sprinkled with moments of grace and gifts of love. There's a couple of things I'm taking away from this conversation with Andy about transition. The first one is this. When we put other people's gifts and calling, their skills and talents on the same level as our own, we not only honor them, but we earn their trust. What would it look like if our loved ones didn't have to advocate for their own worth and contribution? Let it be us who is first to say, this decision hinges just as much on your calling as on mine. The other thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is this concept of home. Having that physical structure is really important. But when someone identifies home as one of their deepest needs, there are more ways besides the physical structure to meet that need. Home can mean family, faith tradition, community, church, or even the home of one's true self. And it makes sense when I think about it because there have been times when I have described feelings of coming home, even when I was talking about experiences or family members, or even when I've been far away from home and heard an American accent, it just feels like home. So I think it's time for my definition of home to get an upgrade. You can get Andy Stanton Henry's book, Recovering Abundance, 
12 Practices for Small Town Leaders at Amazon or just about any other online bookstore. You can also visit their website, recoveringabundance.com, and see what Andy and Ashlyn are up to. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you can follow them there at Recovering Abundance. I would love to hear your thoughts about our conversation today. You can reach me at brentwalsh at outofyourshell.coach. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when our next episode airs. Thank you for joining this episode of Out of Your Shell. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.